Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Coming up on today's show, the Emergencies Act would not be in effect in our country were it not for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP party. It's Budget Day in Alberta. Tomorrow, Trevor Toome, an economist, will join us. And we'll also talk about the incident that took place at the Coastal Gas Link site near Houston, B.C. We'll speak with a Global News reporter who was on site this weekend. Tommy Douglas famously said that Pierre Trudeau was using a sledgehammer to crack a peanut when he invoked the War Measures Act back in the 70s. Now his son has, well, done the same in terms of modern legislation. We don't have the War Measures Act in Canada anymore, so it's now the Emergencies Act, and Justin Trudeau has brought it in, and he's facing the same criticism. A lot of people, including our Premier, saying this is a massive overreaction to the situation at hand. Now, of course, the NDP party hasn't been led by Tommy Douglas in a very long time. Today, it's Jagmeet Singh at the helm, and we are delighted that he has time to join us this morning. Mr. Singh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Always a little different, uh, dangerous, perhaps, to compare today's political situations to ones from 50 years ago. But nonetheless, the the parallels are there um, with a different ending. And, And I guess the question, just to start here, Mr. Singh, is right off the hop, Is this not an overreaction? Do you honestly believe the threshold required for the Emergencies Act was met? Uh, Yes, I think that this was, this is a very different act in the past. I think it's important to note that you Democrats proudly voted against the War Measures Act. And in fact, Ad Broadband was critical in replacing the War Measures Act with the Emergencies Act. And he's come out in an opinion editorial uh, stating that, yes, this was the right thing to do to support the Emergencies Act in this situation, it's not the same thing. It's not as broad-reaching. It doesn't have the ability to suspend the charter like the War Measures Act did. So it's very different. And uh, in this circumstance, I think it's evidence of the failure of all levels of government, federal, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, provincial in, in Ontario, Doug Ford, and municipally to respond to the crisis. And the crisis is real. We've got a group of people that were set out on undermining democracy, not something that they're hiding from. They brazenly stated this on the website. They reiterated this in numerous press conferences that they believed that they could replace the elected officials with an arbitrary committee of people to make decisions for the country. They were attacking residents and people when normally protests target government decisions and policies. This was not a protest. This was an occupation and a convoy bent on hurting workers, hurting, taking away people's ability to work, and harassing and intimidating residents of a city that had to be shut down. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in full agreement that the situation was untenable and it was, uh, you know, misguided and all the rules, you know, trying to remove the government and all that was, was quite ridiculous. But in order to trigger the Emergencies Act, you know, the Act itself states it has to in some way be preserving sovereignty, security and the territorial integrity of Canada. How, explain to me how you see any of those three categories being met. First, when you've got a group of people that are set on undermining democracy, fundamentally, this is a, a, an act without precedent. They, they came to Ottawa to occupy it by force to replace a government. And that inherently is something that's a serious attack on our sovereignty. The fact that they 
but were able to shut down borders and lost lots of people jobs, uh, their work, uh, days, in some cases, weeks of work was lost. This was a serious impact on our ability to function as a nation. It's funded with millions and millions of dollars. That's another thing. Mm-hmm. This wasn't just a group of people loosely organized, well-organized, well-financed, with significant foreign funding. Millions of dollars of United States-backed fund- funding went into this act of undermining our democracy. So this is very serious. And again, a failure to respond to the crisis earlier that got us to this point. This is uh, our, an example of the failure to take this crisis seriously, that it had to get to this point. It should have never got here. But because people failed to take it seriously, it had to be taken seriously at some point, And that's why these measures were invoked. For a limited time, we're prepared to withdraw them. We said, I said, that I do not see this lasting full 30 days. I will be... I am prepared and I'm planning to re- remove these powers before the completion of 30 days. And we'll be looking very carefully at the committee that will be struck and my regular briefings to see if there's an ongoing need. And as soon as there is no longer a need, we're prepared to withdraw support. And that's another question, because like you say, the border blockades and all the rest, yes, yeah, serious, serious situation. The situation in Ottawa, obviously an awful situation. But all of those situations were resolved or almost resolved with the Ottawa situation, largely resolved by the time the vote actually came up on Monday evening in the House of Commons. So at that point, to bring in the Emergencies Act, wasn't everything that the Emergency Act was targeting over? When it, it, the vote was to confirm that it was invocation was necessary at the time. Uh, and I believe it was. In addition, there are still ongoing threats. The folks that were occupying Ottawa moved just to the borders. There's a number of vehicles still in neighboring cities of Ibram and Vars, where there are vehicles there waiting to return. The security officials have said that they believe very strongly that these folks will return if the emergency orders are lifted, and they are waiting just to see that they were lifted. There are folks that are still in Ottawa in Airbnbs and hotels waiting to see if the orders are lifted, and then they'll return. We've also gotten uh, publicly available um, briefings from from security folks that are indicated uh, additional attempts have been made to have convoys come to Ottawa, as well as additional attempts have been made to shut down borders, all which were thwarted or stopped because of the Emergencies Act. So there are ongoing threats, and there's ongoing funding questions, and there's ongoing organizing. Uh, We want to see all those things stopped. We don't think that's going to take the full 30 days. But we know that that's still a real risk. I don't know if we ever had it determined whether or not it was a confidence vote. There were certainly people saying that it was. It wasn't confirmed. It was asked just before the vote in the House of Commons, and and the question was ignored. Um, Did you believe it was a confidence vote when you spoke with your MPs? Oh, we we knew that this was a confidence vote from the beginning. Uh, Our decision was based on us uh, strongly believing that this was uh, needed to be done to stop the serious crisis, that the failure to acknowledge how serious it was is what brought us to this point. And so we, we knew that this needed to happen. But I, I always knew that, uh, you know, we've got a throne speech, which has far less impact than being able to invoke an emergencies sure. act. If a throne speech is a, a confidence vote, then certainly this was a confidence vote. So if this again, wasn't a already, confidence vote, it, that would not have changed the way you approached it. If, if we knew for certain that it was not a confidence vote, you wouldn't have voted differently. Right, uh, and, and that's and that's why I'm indicating that we knew already this was okay. from the beginning. This wasn't something new to us. We knew that, and we had made our decision based on the serious threat to Canadians. Um, you, 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 and I agree with you 100%. It never should have got to the situation that it did. Um, going back to the very beginning, the mandates, 
that, that sparked all this. And now by the end of it, it had nothing to do with mandates. I think we agree on that. But sort of that was the trigger. That was the tipping point. How do you feel about the mandates themselves and the trucker mandates and the travel mandates and the border mandates, the ones that the federal government are in control of, and there's not many, but the ones that they are, I mean, the trucker mandate, do you, do you agree with that? Or do you think it's something that this all could have been avoided by, because there's no need for it anyway? Well, with mandates, I believe that those are decisions that we listen to the best advice of, of public health and public health experts, uh, not to an angry mob. I, I would never think that people would expect governments to make decisions based on angry mobs at the doors when it comes to people's well-being and health. But I do believe there needs to be a clear plan. And I think people are frustrated, rightly so, that the vast majority of Canadians, the vast majority of truckers have done their part, the vast majority of people have done their part, gotten vaccinated, and now we're saying, well, what next? Where, when are we going to get past this pandemic? And that's something that I want to see happen. I don't want to see an arbitrary plan to just end mandates. I want to see a plan to get us out of the, out of the pandemic, which will mean uh, changing restrictions, changing mandates, and that's important. But that has to be done in a way that actually protects people. And the most important tool in order to deal with uh, the restrictions that we've seen, the, imp- the important question is how do we protect our healthcare system so mm-hmm. that it's never in a position of co- being collapsed? keeping it public so that anyone who needs care can get it, and it doesn't matter how much money you earn. Making sure we've got a strong and robust healthcare system that's properly funded is one of the biggest questions and one of the biggest parts of getting past the pandemic and having a plan in place where our healthcare system doesn't continually be at threat of collapsing due to the pressure of an increased need, whether it's because of COVID or any other need. That's, I think, something that Canadians deserve and something that we're pushing for. Uh, Last one, and then I'll let you go. Um, You say you don't think this will last the full 30 days. Um, In reality, you're you're in charge here. I mean, uh, this would not be in place if it weren't for your vote and your party's vote. You're basically the ones that determine whether or not it is in effect. Um, How do you go about having it revoked? Um, And what do you need to see before you stand up in the House of Commons and say, okay, this needs to end? So there are a couple of things that we, we've got a, a committee that's struck by law, an oversight committee that has to constantly receive evidence, testimony and rational for why this has to continue. And at that committee, we'll be evaluating any moment where we think there's overreach or the crisis has been dealt with, we'll be immediately prepared to withdraw our support. The mechanism to do that is you need 20 MPs to submit signatures for a motion to force a debate, and then that forces a vote. That can happen. That has to happen within three days of that submission of putting that motion forward. And the debate can only last 10 hours. So it's very limited in time. And then that forces a vote. So we're prepared to do that. That's a mechanism that we have at our disposal. And I've advised the prime minister uh, and I've said it clearly that we are prepared to pull our support as soon as it's no longer needed. Or if there's any moment where we see an overreach uh, or abuse of power, and, and I guess the question is, what what would give you what more needs to happen for you to say, okay, it's not needed anymore? I mean, at this point, it's it's hard for a lot of people to justify. So, what are you looking for to say, okay, this has gone as far as it needs to go? Well, there was a three week occupation of the capital city that just was cleared up a couple it was. Of days ago. Well, it was just cleared up a couple of days ago. So they were entrenched. They had logistics. They had organization. They had funding. So that was not something that's going to go away just because they've been cleared up. So there's vehicles that are still waiting, and we've got reports of those from security folks and, and from police officials. That are, there are vehicles that are waiting just outside Ottawa's border uh, to return. We know there's significant amounts of funds that still have to be dealt with, and we know there's been repeated attempts. There's been attempts that have been thwarted since the Emergencies Act has been in place, attempts to, again, another convoy to come to Ottawa. 
there's been attempts to shut down borders, and all of those have been stopped. And so we want to make sure that we have a secure period of time, that, that there are no longer these attempts being made, that there is a clear disincentive or there's a clear denouncement of this type of behavior. And so um, I believe that that can happen shortly. That'll happen soon. But uh, it's something certainly that needs a little bit more time. Uh, Mr. Singh, unfortunately, I'm out of time. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. That is Jagmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP party, giving us his reasoning for why the Emergencies Act is in place. And that's the thing. Don't, don't get mad at Trudeau about it. Sure, he brought it in, but it wouldn't be in if it weren't for the NDP. They had to support it. They had to prop it up. So um, there's his reasoning. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. For why he did Coming up tomorrow is the budget. We're going to find out exactly what the province's finances are like and what they're going to look like for the next year. And things have changed dramatically, night and day compared to what it used to be. Travis Taves, the province's finance minister, told us it's a budget for you, for your future, for your kids' future, and for Alberta's future. So you get it? It's a budget about the future. And right now, the money that we have on hand uh, is a lot more than was expected. So let's get some details on what we might expect tomorrow with Trevor Toome, an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Trevor, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Great to be here. So yeah, uh, we'll get to the details in just a minute, but I guess the overarching headline, the big story, the takeaway is one we already know. Revenues way, way, way up on resources. Suddenly this province is, I don't want to say a wash in cash, but in a much better position than they were a year ago. It's really hard to overstate just how large of an improvement we've seen over the past year. I guess this time uh, last year, in February of 2021, when the government put forward its its budget, then it was anticipating revenues of about $44 billion for this year. And it looks like we're going to land close to 60 potentially. So we have just an enormous increase in revenue on a per-person basis as larger than at any point in Alberta history, this dramatic swing. Really? Wow. Yep. Um, yep. Okay, so sh- should we be talking about a surplus then? I mean, I know balanced budget has always been the focus and, you know, the plan to get to a balanced budget, but could we potentially be in, in surplus territory here? Potentially we could be. And a lot will depend, of course, on what the government chooses to uh, budget for in terms of oil prices and its contingency or its spending decisions. So it it has some control over what the actual balance is. But if you just look at where oil prices are now and where investors are uh, betting that they will be over the coming year, we are way above what we need to balance. 
what we need is roughly $71 per barrel over the coming year in order to balance. And it looks like we should be budgeting for prices well above that. And that means a surplus for budget 2022. Of course, the other side, and whether we end up in a surplus or not, is... Um Spending, right? You got your revenues, you got your spending. So um, this government campaigned on bringing spending down, and and to be, to their credit, they have, right? Yeah, absolutely, they have. So they they didn't really cut overall spending just in terms of the raw dollars. They've kind of held that flat. But with population growth and of course inflation, the real value of those dollars has been declining, while other provinces have increased their per capita spending amount. So the government's goal stated all the way back since 2019, has been to align Alberta spending per person with the other large provinces yeah. of B.C., Ontario, Quebec. And it looks like they might achieve that in 2022. And that's not trivial. It's worth roughly 5 to $6 billion in terms of where spending is going to be relative to where the previous government's fiscal plans would have had it in the same year. Um, okay, some of the details. The Premier saying this budget will have a focus on health care. He says the pandemic has identified the fact that we don't have the capacity that we need, especially with intensive care, and he wants to deal with it. That sounds expensive, yeah. Trevor. Well, it is the largest ministry of government by far. So uh, putting COVID spending aside, just like the base operating expenditures in health in Alberta is nearly 22 billion dollars. And so looking at uh, looking at that ministry, what does the government have planned for it? What does that mean in terms of spending? I think that will indeed be a very interesting thing to watch. Not only because I think there's a pressing need to, I guess, reinvest in health, expand capacity, especially coming out of the pandemic and all the backlogs that that has created and the strain, but it also allows the government to point a finger at Ottawa, which of course they like to do, uh, and, and note that the federal government hasn't increased its health transfers to the extent that Alberta and every other province would like to see. So it kind of works for the government politically, um, independent of, I think, the strong merits to, to start boosting health spending. Uh, a couple areas I think most Albertans are looking at, you know, we talk about the recovery and post-pandemic and all the rest, and the big one is jobs. And uh, mm-hmm. that's been a constant theme with this government as well, and it was mentioned as well, the Premier saying, we're going to focus on, on employment in this budget. How can they do that? What do you expect to see or what can you, you know, predict might be in a budget to help with jobs? Well, it, it is important to remember that the government is limited in what it can do to move an economy up and down, uh, especially one the size of Alberta's, one that is exposed to all sorts of international developments. So oil prices, uh, economic growth elsewhere in the world, all of that matters much more than anything that the government does. But it does look like that job creation is going to be stronger than we thought. So it's not just oil prices and government revenues. If we go back again to last year's budget, they thought that the unemployment rate over 2021 would be nearly 10%. Right. It looks like it's going to be about uh, eight and a half to nine or so. And in 2022, this year, we might see unemployment rates kind of sustainably below 7%. So it's kind of getting back to where we were uh, and actually below where we were prior to COVID. So our recovery 
has has gone really well, and I think that'll that'll continue to show strength this year. Um, and uh, the other one here, and of course, we're all dealing with this, it's inflation. Now, there's been some talk of maybe some relief when it comes to natural gas and things like that. I mean, I think that's something all Albertans are looking at. It's coming down the line, and it just seems to steadily be going up. Um, what do you expect to see from the province? Have you got any indication about what strings they can pull to help Albertans there? Well, it's tough for a provincial government, certainly, to affect aggregate inflation, which I think we should be looking to um, not not the central bank exclusively, but these global developments. So high real estate prices and high energy prices are the two dominant factors driving Canada's high inflation right now. There's not a lot uh, the provincial government can do to affect that, other than maybe some temporary measures to maybe provide certain kind of rebates or cash transfers on people's utility bills, for example. You could imagine sharing some of the the royalty revenue that it's going to be having from maybe natural gas in particular. So there's things that the government could do to cushion the blow in the short term. There's really not a lot that Alberta could do to really affect global energy prices or real estate. Okay, last one, Trevor. And speaking of global energy prices, nobody expected prices to be this high. Nobody expects them to stay this high for this long. The age-old right. question in Alberta, um, we're, we're, it's, it's quote-unquote a boom. Maybe it's a little different than other booms, but it, you know, it's unforecasted oil revenues. Um, and we always talk about you know, saving for a rainy day, using the money to diversify, not relying on the up and down of the oil cycle. Is there any indication that this government may actually take that step? Well, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't bet on it. No, we, we are firmly on the royalty roller coaster. And, yeah. You know, sometimes roller coasters go up, and, and that's great. But we shouldn't forget that we are exposed to significant risk when oil prices at some point uh, fall and potentially fall dramatically. You know, that can happen. Then we will see that hit back on the budget. So I think it, it's about time we start talking about how to better budget for stability and for a long-term and sustainable fiscal future in the province. I think right now, though, I'd be surprised if the government laid out any plans, but I'm hoping for a signal that they want to start to move in that direction or at least have a conversation with Albertans. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, and we'll be watching tomorrow. Uh, Trevor, thanks for the preview. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. That is Trevor Toome, who is the Associate Professor in the Department of Economics at University of Calgary. Police continue their investigation into the attack. The, well, I mean, it's it's. You've seen the video. If you've seen the video that was released by RCMP yesterday, it's it's almost like watching the purge. You know that movie, The Purge. You've got a bunch of people in in coveralls, like the plastic or the paper coveralls, or you know the ones, the temporary ones, the disposable ones, um, and uh, chasing after vehicles and swinging what appear to be axes and their spray paint. You've seen the damage that was done. Uh, RCMP uh, say they had a hard time even getting to the site. So, I mean, a really scary, scary situation uh, taking place at the Coastal GasLink site um, near Houston, B.C. Millions of dollars in damage done last week. As many as 20 people coming in right after midnight and uh, and laying siege. Now, Global News sent Imad Agahi up there, a reporter, to try and find out exactly what the situation is, and he joins us now. Uh, Imad, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, okay, just give us the lay of the land. I haven't been there, and uh, it, it sounds like it actually took place over a pretty wide area, all the different incidents. So just give us a, a description of what this site looks like. Well, it's a site that's pretty remote, and it's very uh, difficult to get to, about 90 kilometers on 
a forest service road that, uh, you know, you can access from a town uh, of Houston, B.C., which is in north central uh, B.C. So to get to the, the drill site, the most active site of construction right now, which is happening in a place called uh, the Morris River drill site, you need to drive uh, with no cell service on a service road for 90 minutes. Wow. And along that route is where most of this uh, demonstration and blockades previously uh, have been going on with confrontations between uh, RCMP, uh, workers for Coastal Gas Link, and demonstrated. That's sort of where the action has been happening for years now. Um, uh, but this work site is at the end of a pretty sophisticated forest uh, road system, as uh, you would say. And like you say, there's been incidents along the route before and at this location before. This isn't the first time something's happened there. No, and, and there has been back and forth and confrontation between uh, a group, those that are opposed to the Coastal Gas Link uh, natural gas pipeline, the construction of it. Uh, uh, the company itself has uh, said before that it has approval project agreement with uh, the folks in the area, the 20 elected band councils in the area, uh, but previously, and previous to this incident altogether, uh, there have been groups of hereditary chiefs from the Wet'suwet'en First Nation who uh, do not uh, uh, believe that they were consulted in the right way and that they uh, have, uh, at the end of the day, authority over uh, the land there and, and the band councils who have signed agreements uh, uh, the hereditary leadership thinks the band council is only uh, has only jurisdiction over uh, matters that are on reserve. So there is uh, a divide in yeah within who has yeah exactly. Um, you spoke with RCMP and had a chance to talk to them about what's going on. Uh, they released some video last night. They've described this as a uh, attack on a company vehicle and on the property and even on some of the staff there. What have RCMP told you about what happened there and what their investigation is focused on? And before we go into that, it is very important to know the RCMP have yet to connect what has happened uh, on February 17th, last Thursday, with any of the previous demonstrations. But uh, what they have told us is uh, just after midnight last Thursday, and you mentioned the video before I came on, um, that a group of 20 people dressed, you know, in, in camouflage, but what we see in the video, they were dressed in uh, body suits, essentially, yeah, yeah. Had, had cut the gate and they had, uh, there was about nine workers on site, mostly security workers, that uh, were chased off the site, as you saw in the video, uh, and uh, they were their vehicle's main point of uh, of contact with this group is their vehicles. The lights were smashed in the front and the back of of the security trucks, essentially immobilizing them in the dark. Um, and access was made uh, to the work site, and the work site is large and lots has a lot of heavy equipment. And uh, the RCMP and the company are alleging that these attackers had actually uh, hijacked this equipment to cause most of the damage. Now, we went to the site days after, yeah. and there are uh, portable trailers that workers are stationed in uh, when they're on the job that have been uh, essentially chopped up, and the machinery itself had been flipped. Some of it had been damaged. Um, I'm told that the heavy machinery are all write-offs, and that uh, 
they will not be able to use again. And that's where most of this damage uh, in, in money terms, in monetary terms, has happened. Uh, we're estimated uh, around $6 million at this point, but there are also a lot of environmental factors that the project is concerned about. Uh, the company had uh, accused the attackers of cutting um, hydraulic lines and, you know, spilling fuel from this, these machines that were now essentially useless to the company as well. Um, and also some of the footage that we see, they're swinging axes at the vehicle. RCMP saying that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, uh, the lights were smashed, um, but the vehicles were targeted with workers inside of them. Yes, and, and there were three vehicles that I had firsthand look at in uh, a lot separate from the project site that uh, were attacked with w- essentially axe marks in the side of the truck bed. Um, the rear view cameras were, were hit. The lights were out. Uh, the workers inside, uh, there are some firsthand accounts from them released by the company. and We weren't uh, able to interview these workers uh, they did fear for their safety, but uh, the company has put out their firsthand account. And these are people who are pretty freaked out. You mentioned the video is pretty scary. It you is. look at a group of people coming at you and you do not really know their intentions at that point. Um, I'm understood that they were told to leave. So the workers weren't uh, physically hurt, um, but they, they're pretty spooked out. And uh, even returning the, to work, as you can imagine, the next day after seeing something like that, uh, has the company very concerned. Now, a very interesting question, and I know that a lot of people were wondering, because there's one road into the site, yeah. and uh, obviously the RCMP had some barriers put in their way to get to the site, but they did get there eventually. Uh, how did these 20 people get away? Uh, and that's something that I, I, I had a chance to ask one of the lead investigators. And um, the only explanation we were given is, is they went into the forest. They essentially scattered into sophisticated trails in, in the area. So they know the area quite well to be able to get away from uh, responding RCMP officers into the uh, dark night in the yeah. forest surrounding it, thick forest. So that is one of the interesting things that, uh, to me, uh, is is also a part of this story is a complete getaway from 20 people. Um, have RCMP named any suspects, identified anybody that they're looking at, or have we not reached that point of the investigation yet? So there, what we know is they're investigating a group of 20 people, but uh, no names have been released. Okay. And part of it could be because they are working on charges to present to the B.C prosecution service but uh you know yesterday there was some very interesting reporting done um by a reporter at the the prince george post who had spoken to uh, one of the superintendents rcap superintendents on charge named warren brown who told uh that reporter that they have two suspects now uh that uh, they are working evidence against to present the crown counsel and it is hoped that these two suspects could be the start of what could be more charges down the road for others. And that's very new information um, that we are learning now because it seems like they may know uh, one or two of the people who maybe orchestrated this pretty complex uh, alleged attack on this site because it's not just what happened on the site. It's also um, the barriers that were put in front of RCMP, as they explained, to, to delay their response or, or, or even 
um, deny a response altogether. And uh, I have to say, the, the evidence that we saw in the video seems like it was taken by the security workers on their cell phone, perhaps, because the video does move back and forth. There may be a body camera. But um, the company did mention, again, it speaks to the sophistication of what happened there uh, by this group of attackers. The, the lights and some surveillance cameras, the company said, were cut and disabled as part of this attack. And that may have made this a little bit harder for police to, to really get a nail down on what happened because of that. Um, last one, and then I'll let you go, and I really appreciate your time, Ahmad. Uh, we're chatting with Ahmad Agahi, who's a global news reporter that was up at the site of the coastal gas link uh, destruction. The question is, what's going on at that site now? What's the company's stance on this? Have they suspended operations? Are they trying to clean up? I mean, the, the destruction is catastrophic. The company right now, as we understand it, has paused temporarily what they're doing in that site. And, and, and some background there, what they're doing at that Morris River drill site is actually drilling uh, to get the pipeline to go underneath the river there, the Morris River. And that is one of the areas where the local hereditary uh, opposition to the, the project has the most concern about, uh, you know, they've mentioned that that's their drinking water. And, and so um, right now the company is, is waiting for the RCMP to finish gathering whatever they need to before they start again with the project. There's also a lot of cleanup involved. I mean, you've seen the pictures, and uh, they have to move this damaged equipment out, and it's not easy to move equipment that big. Um, So it definitely does put a little bit more pressure on the company, uh, who uh, going into this has had some delays already with this big, massive construction project um, to clear out and move on as quick as they can but, I mean, now you have the the thought in the back of your mind, if you're this company or a worker or a contractor, um, that something like this sure. happens. Absolutely. And, and the people who have been carrying this out are still being investigated and perhaps not in, in custody. So that might be one of the things that we would have to keep an eye on in the future. This project gets delayed even more because of what has happened here and how much that would mean um, in terms of cost as well being uh, now much higher. Ahmad, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate the update. Thanks for having me on again. You bet. Thank you, sir. That is Ahmad Agahi, who's a reporter with Global BC and uh, was up at the site uh, of the uh, Coastal Gas Link um, camp that they had set up there that was, uh, uh, was attacked. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.